This is Jaquan, the Hip Hop Historian. Join me on February 21st, the 56th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. I'll be having a conversation with Keith LeBlanc, the drummer behind the legendary No Sellout Malcolm X song from 1984. Hear about the inspiration for the recording and the impact of the groundbreaking song, which was the first to sample Malcolm X speeches and also introduce Malcolm X to a new generation. All right, you got Jaquan, the hip hop historian, here with my good friend Keith LeBlanc, the drummer for Sugar Hill Records and Taghead, and uh, quite a few, quite a few entities that he's uh, he's behind those drums on. How you doing, my brother? I'm doing good this morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, man. We're here on the 56th anniversary of the assassination of the uh, great uh, Hodge Malik Shabazz, also known as Malcolm X. And for those that don't know, Keith LeBlanc is the one of the first people, maybe the first person on a record to to actually sample. Uh, in, in those days, uh, we weren't freely using the word sample, but to sample Malcolm X's voice on a record. And he crafted a whole song called No Sellout based on snippets from Malcolm X's speeches. So it is. Uh, still got maybe, still got the 12 inch. Still got the 12 inch. And that was on Tommy Boy Records after he had left. Uh, Left Sugar Hill Records. So tell me about the beginnings of the um, that where the idea came from and where you got the records and how you put the whole thing together. Uh, the idea, uh, the first uh, time I heard any spoken word with uh, a beat was uh, Grandmaster Flash uh, on the Wheels of Steel. Um, that record. He had cut in some uh, Dirty Harry off of a cassette. And I just thought that uh, the combination of spoken word and a beat was uh, really striking. So uh, I was dead broke. Sugar Hill was just about closed up. And uh, I, uh, I remembered there were some records up in the old studio, uh, some Malcolm X records I had seen a long time ago. So I... I went up to Sugar Hill to do something and there was hardly anyone there. And I w went upstairs and I found one of the records and uh, leaving the place, I saw Marshall Chess and he asked me what I was doing with the record, you know, and I, I just told him I was going to try and make a 12 inch using Malcolm's speeches. He loved the idea. So uh, he agreed to uh, give me some money to come up with a demo, you know, and, uh, I knew nothing about Malcolm X, absolutely nothing. I had played the Autobot Ballroom and didn't even know it was where he had gotten shot um, until uh, Skip McDonald had told me. And, uh, but I didn't feel comfortable in the place from the time I walked in. That's, what, that's why it came up. I felt, felt horrible in the place. So uh, I went home and I knew nothing about Malcolm X, so I called Harold Sargent, who's... Uh, Passed away now. Yeah, rest in peace, Great, great drummer. And, and that's Harold Sargent from uh, Wood Brass and Steel, um, the band that you would eventually join, the Sugar Hill House Band at some point. But just for those that don't know, that's the late, great uh, Harold Sargent. Definitely. Yep. And uh, he uh, was wonderful. He, uh, you know, I called him. I said, Harold, I I'm in trouble. <laughs> I don't know anything about Malcolm X. So he told me to get Alex Haley's uh, autobiography. 
and told me to come over his house. And he loaded me up with all every Malcolm X record he had. And then I spent about a month listening to every speech Malcolm made. And uh, there weren't any samplers back then, so I had to do it to tape, take the bits off on tape. And uh, then uh, Marshall Chess was owed money by uh, Joe Robinson. And Joe Robinson didn't want to give him the cash, so Marshall needed studio time. So Joe said, well, you can use the studio. And uh, he'd throw in an engineer, which was Eric Thorngren, uh, E.T. Thorngren. And uh, I didn't want to do it at No Sellout, but I didn't want to do No Sellout at uh, Sugar Hill Records, but I had no choice, really. Um, so I did it incognito. No, you know, I managed to pull it off. No one even knew what I was doing. Right. Except for Marshall and Eric Thorngren figured it out, you know, after I put down all the parts. And uh, then uh, I put down all the keyboard parts, you know, wrote the song and everything. And we flew in uh, Malcolm's voice off a of tape. Um, wow. So, there, you know, I was doing it like a DJ with the half inch machine. And before I did that, I think Eric spent, he spent a good day just uh, processing the vocals because they were from all different places. And uh, so you guys didn't even have a Fairlight sampler. I mean, the Fairlight was out at that time, but you didn't have one at Sugar Hill. No, there were there were no samplers at that time. They hadn't come out yet. Okay. Uh, okay. It, it, there was no such thing. Hmm. And uh, so, um. Anyway, the Robinsons, you know, they loved the record. I think they just about shit their pants when they heard it. And, uh, you know, so, I, I, you know, no one mentioned anything about me or uh, Betty Shabazz. And uh, so, you know, I got in touch with Betty Shabazz and played her the tape. And she loved it. And uh, I wanted to get 50% of it. Marshall went right along with me because uh, he knew, uh, you know, what Sugar Hill was up to. And uh, he went over and saw Tom Silverman from Tommy Boy, and they loved the record. So uh, um, Tommy set me up. I wanted to change the bass on it, do a couple little changes. So he set me up in, in, uh, with a session at Unique Studios with Chris Lord Algae, which was fun because... He had worked at Sugar Hill and, you know, now we were both escaped Sugar Hill. And we were working on that. So Chris uh, did the final mix of it. And uh, I was really lucky doing that record. Scared to death, though, man, because uh, when I did that record, it was a taboo subject. Mm. Malcolm X was a taboo subject. No one wanted to touch it. People were afraid of it. And uh, Betty loved it because, you know, she, she had a big giggle about it because, you know, she said she figured that someone could have done something with her, her uh, husband's voices on a record, you know, with her husband's voice a long time ago. But no one ever did it. And, you know, here comes this little white boy from Connecticut. She, she had a, got a big kick out of that. And, yes, uh, yes. and you develop you develop quite a friendship with, uh, with Batty Shabazz over the years. Tell me a little bit about that. And um, I know that Sugar Hill actually released um, a version of No Sellout under like the Sugar Hill All-Stars or something like that. I know this court thing and all of that. But tell me about how you got so close with Betty and tell me the kind of person Betty was. I know you were you had a relationship with her. Tell the people about that. Yeah. So, you know, when I first met her, she 
she was really straight up serious. Uh, the guy's secretary she had was real straight up, you know, scary, really, meeting her. And I uh, left the tape with her, but she liked the tape. So she had me come and see her again. And uh, she was like a second mom at that point. You know, she really warmed up and opened up to me. And uh, I got to know her quite well oh, 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 through the course of we had to go to court because Sugar Hill they were caught sleeping. They didn't know what to do. So they bought the Tommy Boy record, put it to tape, put an edit in it, and then put it out as the Sugar Hill All-Stars, which, and then sued us. So we had to go to court and defend it, which we won. Um, Joe got a point, but he ended up killing a record in the States. He was calling all the radio stations personally, telling them, don't play it. Whitey's trying to steal our shit, you know, and... I know that's true. I heard it from so many sources. And, uh, but Betty was, uh, she was a really kind, beautiful woman, really a princess. And uh, she knew um, who had killed her husband. She knew where they lived long before the documentary came out, who killed Malcolm X. She knew. And uh, she had tapes that Malcolm had recorded the FBI in their kitchen. That's right. You know, and she and she was, you know, she wanted to give me all those tapes. But then when she saw all the heat I was under um, when the record came out, uh, she I think she thought better of that because she might get me killed, you know, and. Because uh, she, she was very smart, very intuitive woman. And. Uh, so uh, but. She protected me through all that because there were people who just wanted to do me in when, when they heard this record. There were journalists, you know, they hated the thought of it being on a hip hop record. But she told me Malcolm would have loved the record, yeah. you know, and uh, so that made me feel better. Um, and I found, you know, I had found out a lot about Malcolm um, in the process of doing the record. Um, you know, because I listened to all of his speeches, you know, and all I knew about him was, you know, he's someone that my my parents loved Martin Luther King and they didn't like Malcolm X. Right. Right. And uh, so when I listened to his speeches, you know, I realized, wow, this is, you know, a real articulate man, you know, almost like Gandhi or somebody, you know, and uh, no wonder they wanted to shut him up because. Right, right, right. He could have changed the whole landscape of the world, really, uh, with the mind he had. Yeah. Really, you know, I felt at the end of the record, I felt he should be put up there as a national hero, just like uh, Martin Luther King. And they both died for their beliefs, you know, and, you know, I don't I don't think the you know, uh, today is bittersweet because they shot him down like a dog. I mean, I've been in an Autobot ballroom. There's nowhere to get out of there. And I think going in, he knew he was going to get killed. He knew what was up. But um, fearless man. Uh, very much so. Very much so. Let me, um, I'm going to change gears a little bit. What kind of drum machine did you use on, uh, on No Sellout? A DMX. It was a DMX. And, and a great guy named Carl Sturkin let me borrow his DMX. Because mm -hmm. I didn't, I couldn't afford one then. And let me take it over to Sugar Hill. If, if it hadn't been for him, you know, the record wouldn't have happened because he let me use his studio to come up with the track, you know, 
a demo of it and try everything out. And Harold Sargent also let me use his studio. Speaking of your Tommy Boy, real quick, uh, your affiliation. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that you did the first Four D's album. You and other members of the Sugar Hill House Band, uh, Doug Wimbish played some stuff on some of that first Four D's album. You did Itching for a Scratch uh, by the Four D's. Uh, you did Lip Service, uh, Beatmaster. You were Beatmaster. That was Lip Service was you. Yeah, well, that was just like, you know, me and Chris were in the studio. And right. literally, we just threw that together. At, um, the vocals on there are Chris, actually, <laughs> you know, uh, and we triggered it off the drums and we just do it together. And uh, Robbie Kilgore did all the keyboards on that. And he was way ahead of his time with the MIDI stuff back then. But uh, that was, you know, strictly I didn't know what to call that. It was like cornball. I don't know. It was just. The beat, was, the beat was incredible, though. And, I, you know, at the time, man, as a, you know, 13, 14 year old, I remember buying um, the Masters of the Beat compilation that was on time. I think Rick Rubin had a, a beat on there and then you had a beat. You I know, had a couple goes, beats on there. And I and uh, I did those really on my own, those things. Um, yeah. Well, I would have uh, never but, known. Uh, but the Force MDs, that was, you know, I, I did start the project with uh, Tommy's wife at the time, Robin Halpin. She was operating the uh, Synclavier and everything. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it needed more. So I got uh, Skip McDonald, Doug Wimbish in, and uh, I ended up getting Craig Darian because the four MDs were kind of uncontrollable in the studio when it came to doing the vocals. So, you know, Tommy was like, I don't know what to do. And I said, I got just a guy for you. And Craig like whipped him into shape because Craig's like an amazing vocal coach, amazing vocalist. So yes. it was nice. I had, you know, my old team, you know, the original team, we were, we just changed record companies, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as a 13 year old, you know, because I used to look at the records all the time, I did catch the names on some of those records, but I would have never known that the same guy who did these masters of the beeps records and even the, uh, Malcolm X record was the same guy that played the drums on Ape Wonder and Apache and all of this. So that's crazy. Um, this last question. Um, tell me a little bit about um in that court in the court uh proceedings and everything, Al Shopman was pretty uh he played a bit pretty big part in, in, in the whole court part of that, didn't he? No, not really. I mean, right when we uh were we found out that Joe was taking us to court, um Tom Silverman got a call from Reverend Al Sharpton, you know, and Tom was terrified, you know, because he, he had no experience, but Reverend Al used to be over at Sugar Hill all the time, hobnobbing with Joe. So I, you know, dressed like a pimp, you know, and like no one took him seriously. Everyone knew he was a shyster back then. And uh, so I told Tommy, I said, have a meeting with him. You know, he wants to have a meet. Tommy told me he wanted to have a meeting with him. And I said, don't worry, Tommy, I'll go with you. So I went to the meeting. It was a little diner next to Tommy Boy. And Reverend Al saw me. I don't know whether he recognized me, but Tom introduced me as a drummer from Sugar Hill. So all of a sudden, his demeanor changed. And then I just told him, I said, look, I'm down with Betty Shabazz. She's got 50% of the record. So what's your question? And he said, I was just making sure. You know, he said, then it, it's all cool, right? And I said, yeah, it's all cool. And then we didn't talk any more about it. You know, it was a schmoozatorium after that. Finished our coffees and left. But, you know, I think Reverend Al has uh, grown 
over the years and done some great things. But uh, back then, you know, I asked Betty what, you know, what she thought of Reverend Al Sharpton, because, of course, I called her first and she she laughed. I said, what you know, what do you think of Reverend Al? She said, in a word, opportunist. <laughs> she was really uh, poignant with her. She she thought deeply before she said things. And, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And she was, you know, being around Malcolm, she was she was sharp as a tack. So, um, you know, I don't I don't know. I think Reverend Al was just trying to find out, you know, Joe had probably told him. Uh, These white boys are stealing our shit, you know, because that was Joe. What was Joe was telling everybody. So Reverend Al was, you know, thought he was defending, you know, Betty, you know. And uh, so when I told him Betty had 50 percent of the record, he was just totally cool. Then, right. Know? He had nothing to stand on. Exactly. I understand. Yeah. I understand. So. So I don't know what his motivation was, you know, but I think it was just he was trying to do Joe a favor because they were tight from way back in the days, you know. Well, okay. look, I definitely appreciate this uh, inside information, Keith. I think most people, this will be the first time that they've heard most of this information, you know, uh, they, they to put a face to to the to this historic recording. Uh, definitely a pleasure for you to give me the opportunity to do so. There you have it. All right. Beautiful Great story, talking bro. to you as usual. The main, the only historian, the only real historian for hip hop that I know oh. that knows that's talked to everybody is you. So thanks for calling, man. Thank you. Thank you for answering. I appreciate it. <laughs>